Well, we come now to our lessons on introduction to systematic theology, and we're continuing to look at the doctrine of God's eternal decree. And today, this is basically part two of what we started last week. Last Lord's Day, we read from the larger catechism, question and answer number 12, and we began to unpack the answer found there, which was, what are the decrees of God? And the answer is, God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels of men and men. So we noted two things last week. One, we noted that our confession refers to this as God's eternal decree, singular. Yet the catechisms speak of decrees, plural. Why is that? Well, ultimately, as we discovered, there is only one decree. There is one singular, all-encompassing, comprehensive thought in the mind of God. But the reason why the catechism speaks of decrees, plural, is because of the limitations that you and I have as finite creatures bound by time and space. And so as this one single decree is played out and revealed in time and space, we as creatures bound by time and space see and understand the decree as it unfolds, thus seeing it in parts. Burkhoff writes, our finite comprehension constrains us to make distinctions, and this accounts for the fact that we often speak of the, dec of the decrees of God in the plural. Well, then secondly, after noting that point, we then began to look at the extent of the decree. That is, what all does God's decree involve? Our catechism states that God has unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time. In other words, everything. There are no people. There are no actions. There are no periods of time that are excluded from God's eternal decree. Now, usually when you say this, people, as we, we've said before, have no problem believing that God decreed all the good stuff that happens in history. But they have a hard time believing that the bad stuff is included as well. Well, to cut straight to the chase, we demonstrated from Scripture how even the evil acts of men are decreed by God. We saw where God states, for example, in Isaiah 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then he goes on in verse 11, and included within that counsel, within that purpose, is this, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This bird of prey from the east, as we noted, is a reference to the pagan king Cyrus, whom God anointed, uh, 45 verse 1, to subdue nations before him and loose the loins of the kings. Now that alone should be convincing. But in case it wasn't, we then considered what could easily be said to be one of the most heinous evil crimes ever committed by mankind. And that was the murder of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that great evil occurred, according to Acts 2.23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We saw in Isaiah that it was God who said it was, he was pleased to crush him, laying the iniquity of us all on his son. Well, I want to continue to look at a few more verses that speak of the extent of God's eternal decree. 
In Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, we read this from Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now here Paul makes this reference to predestination, which we're not going to comment on now. We've got a whole lesson for that. But notice that this predestination is according, quote, to the good pleasure of his will. We see similar language as we read further along in Ephesians 1. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And then in verse 11, we see it again. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Whose will? Your will? My will? No, his will. What things? All things. Notice that while Paul here again is highlighting predestination, he states that this decree of predestination is according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we see clearly here that God controls every event according to his plan. And here in particular, he does so, so that to ensure that his elect will be saved and enter into glory. This parallels what we have already seen in Isaiah 46.10, where it states, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Notice the words that are used in these texts. God's will, God's counsel, God's pleasure. These words are interchangeable and they are all expressing the same thing. That is that God does whatever is good in his sight. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3 But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 33.11 the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You see the parallel there. The counsel of the Lord is the plans of his heart. And they stand forever. In Isaiah 14 we read, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. And then he goes on, verse 25, Then I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. Then his yoke shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. For this is the hand that is stretched over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul it? Who, uh, who will annul it? His, his hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Again, know here what it is in this context that God has thought so that it will come to pass and that God has purposed so that it will stand the destruction of the Assyrians and treading them underfoot. So we see God not only decreed the destruction of Assyria, but such destruction cannot fail to come to pass. 
It asks, who will annul it? Who will turn it back? The answer is no one. No one can stop God's decree from being fulfilled. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. So we see that God not only knows what will come to pass, but God has willed whatsoever comes to pass so that nothing happens that was not decreed by God. Now, inevitably, someone is going to raise the question. If God foreordains everything that comes to pass, and this includes evil, doesn't that make God the author of evil? Well, we're not going to talk about that today. I was going to try to squeeze it in, but since it's such a big question, I'm going to dedicate a whole lesson to that next week. So we will get to it. But again, I want us to continue to, to solidify in our minds the nature of this decree in the extent by considering some other things. Remember what our catechism says. God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time. Notice the words here, wise, free, holy, and unchangeably. First, let's consider that God's eternal decree is wise. Now, when we talk about wisdom, what are we talking about? Well, Webster defines wisdom as the right use or exercise of knowledge, the choice of laudable ends and of the best means to accomplish those ends. So when we think about wisdom amongst ourselves as humans, we think of, you know, common sense, quote unquote, and that's all based off experience. But again, we are talking about God here. And so when we speak of God as being wise, we are not to think that God is observing things, that God is learning, and that God is making his decisions based off this new information that he learns. Rather, God's wisdom here is his knowledge and his power working together to foreordain everything, to happen in such a way that it would bring him the most glory and bring to his people the most benefit. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, Paul writes, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Listen to this. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Robert Raymond writes, God is all wise, eternally and unchangeably so. His wisdom is reflected both in his eternal plan and in all his ways and works. He has wise reasons for his determined ends, even though those reasons may not always be apparent to the creature. God knows all things and all true propositions. He always has and always will know all things and cannot learn more or forget anything he knows. Paul writes in Hebrews 4.13, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In 1 John 3.20, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Thus, the all-wise God is at every moment 
cognizant of everything that ever was, now is, and ever shall be. And it has never been otherwise. He necessarily knows himself exhaustively, says Raymond, and he necessarily knows his creation exhaustively. In both of these, he knows instantaneously, simultaneously, and everlastingly. His knowledge of himself and of all other things is absolutely comprehensive and eternally intu uh, intuitive. That is, he has never learned anything because he has always known everything. Well, we also read that God's decrees are free. Now, when we say that God's decrees are free, we're not suggesting here that he would have otherwise charged us the fee to learn of his decrees. Rather, by free, we are basically saying that God is dependent upon no one. God's will is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. It is absolute, it is unconditional, it is free of any causes outside of himself. But we are not saying that his decree is free from his own holy character. And so God's decrees are not arbitrary, they're not capricious, they're not irrational. In Isaiah 40, we read, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or, or as his counselor has taught him. And here, this is Paul in Romans. With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. You know, as mankind, we think highly uh, big of ourselves, like we're something important. Well, how weighty are you? Listen to what Isaiah says. You're like the small dust on the scale. And he says that of nations, us collectively. When, if you have a scale at home, I'm assuming it probably has some dust on here. Turn the scale on and see if it registers. It won't. Beloved, these are rhetorical questions. The answer is there's no one. God didn't counsel with anybody. He wasn't directed by anyone. God was not taught by anyone. God did not need you and I to instruct him and to show him the way of understanding. It is you and I who are dependent upon him. It is you and I who have to learn. But that is not so with Almighty God. He is never, ever in the position of a learner who needs to be taught. We also read that God's decrees are holy. Nothing that God decreed is unjust, unrighteous, unwise, or unholy. After Paul explains the reality and nature of election in Romans 9, he anticipates the objection by asking the question, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? And his answer is certainly not. And we'll look at that in another lesson more uh, in detail. But uh, Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. Hoxima writes, the holiness of God is that wonder of the divine nature according to which God is absolute, infinite, eternal, and ultimate ethical perfection. 
himself being the standard, motive, and purpose of all the activity of his personal nature so that he is eternally consecrated to himself alone as the only good. And then we saw that God unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Again, Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Beloved, are you starting to see a pattern here? Remember what we said back in the introduction. That's why I spent so much time talking about that. The nature and character of God's decree flows out of the nature and character of God. God's decrees are wise because God is wise. God's decrees are free and independent because God is free and dependent upon nobody. God's decrees are holy acts because God is holy. And what God has decreed is unchangeably foreordained because God does not change. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I do not change. In James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God's plan is perfect because God is perfect. You know, there are actually folks out there that would suggest that God has to change his plans every so often. But think again, about what that implies about the nature and character of God. Think about why do we as humans oftentimes change our plans? Well, oftentimes we change our plans because we plan thinking certain things and then we learn something new and then have to adjust our plans accordingly. A couple of weeks ago, a bunch of us wanted to go to Five Guys and eat in the dining room because it could fit all of us and we could eat. And we got there and learned that they closed the thing down. So we changed our plans, went home, said, poop on y'all, we'll reel our own stuff. Other times, we may change our plans because we make mistakes in our thinking. There are many reasons why we as humans may change our plans, but beloved, what possible reason could there ever be for God to ever change his plans? God is all-knowing. He knows all things and has always known all things. What is there for God to know and to learn, or to, to, to know by learning? Nothing. God is perfect and holy. Therefore, how can God make a mistake? How can God make an error in his judgment? He can't, it's impossible. And so our confession in chapter three, two states, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass, Upon all supposed conditions, yet he hath not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. In other words, God's decree is not contingent upon any condition. It is not dependent upon conditions or events that have not yet taken place. It does not change because God is reacting to something man does. Rather, it is all of our actions and changes that occur in harmony with God's one eternal, unchangeable decree. Again, Raymond writes, and he starts off quoting Clark here, he never receives from some other source or from his own inventive genius an idea he never previously had. God's knowledge is coextensive with all that is. All created things fall within the compass of God's knowledge. 
and indeed are what they are by virtue of God's prior knowledge and determinate counsel. Every fact of the universe has meaning, or Robert Raymond says, may I say interpretation, by virtue of its place in the knowledge and plan of God. Now, if you theologians question whether God bothers himself with the knowledge of earthly trivia, that is, singularities. Jerome, for example, thought, quote, it unworthy of the divine majesty to let it down to this, that he should know how many gnats are born or die every moment, or the number of cinches or the number of fleas on the earth. But beloved, the scriptures explicitly affirm for God just such knowledge, declaring that he determines the number of the stars and has named them all. Psalm 147, verse 4. You know, I, I see fallen stars all the time, by the way, when I'm driving down to Miami in the morning, and I wonder, like, who, that, who was that? Was that Travis? I don't know. <laughs> anyways. Yep. And that nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight, as we've already read in Hebrews. Jesus said that not a sparrow is forgotten by God. Luke 12, 6, and that even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, Matthew 10, 29, and in some cases, less than others. <laughs> and so a very significant implication of God's attribute of absolutely comprehensive, all-encompassing knowledge also has to do with his infallible knowledge of future events. The Bible teaches that God infallibly knows the future, and this because he has decreed the future. And he himself declares that one distinction between himself and all the false gods of this world and his infallible ability to predict the future. God's knowledge of the future is spoken of in some following verses. Isaiah 41, starting in verse 22 Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. I have stirred up one from the north and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. Isaiah 42, verse 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Isaiah 43, 11 and 12. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. And then lastly, Isaiah 44 and verse 7. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? 
No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Beloved, could it be any clearer? As I have noted before, one of the very things that God himself highlights over and over again, especially in the book of Isaiah, in demonstrating his uniqueness as God in opposition to all the false gods and imaginations of men, is that he knows all things, including the future, because he has decreed all things. This is why this doctrine is so important to our faith. As I've said before, when you start to play around and monkey around with this doctrine, you will end up monkeying around with the nature and character of God. You cannot deny God of his wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby he is unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass without denying God himself. Well, as Raymond goes on to say here in this section, as we close, now all of this is very troublesome for some people, chiefly because of the implications God's knowledge of the future has for, quote, the freedom of indifference that they desire to ascribe to men. They quite correctly observe that if God knows all things, then it would seem that he must infallibly know the future. And if he infallibly knows the future, then he must infallibly know all the future acts of men. And if he infallibly knows all the future acts of men, then these acts must be certain of occurrence. But if their acts are certain of occurrence, then men are not free to choose and act as they want. Accordingly, they conclude that divine omniscience is incompatible with human freedom, end quote. Well, like I said, we're going to tackle that very issue in our next lesson. Lord willing. But I hope what you have heard and have solidified in your minds today by the repeated testimony of God in Scripture is the nature and extent of his decree, being wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he has for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time. And that it is this very thing that God himself highlights to contrast himself to man and to contrast himself to those false gods and idols that men create. Beloved, we say it every Lord's day, and we're about to do it again. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make into thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Beloved, these commandments are not just prohibitions against you and I of making statues and attempting to draw pictures of God. These commandments are also warning us about how we do theology, how we think of God, what we say of God. He forbids us at the threat of eternal punishment to imagine him as we want him to be. He is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate him and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love him and keep his commandments as he himself has revealed in his word. Let's rise.